Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. We're the co-host and creator of the show, Tom Joke. Hi, Christopher. How are you, man? I'm great. Happy fall. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. We made it. We sure did. Okay, so we're two episodes into season two. right And this is going to be a beauty. We've got some great stuff for everyone today. We've got Tina Turner from the early 70s. And aren't these clips excellent? They're really cool. Right. And I've got one clip as a bonus clip from 1989, just because she says something in that one clip that's very, very interesting to me. So, uh, so we'll have a listen to that as well. Also... 1977, an interview with 19-year-old Andy Gibb. Now, when you think of all the hits he had then, I actually didn't know he was quite that young when he had those hits in 1977 Mm -hmm, and 78. mm -hmm. And this is a really interesting interview. You know, it reminds me of when we played that interview with uh, Michael Hutchins, like six months before Michael died. Because Michael was, you know, up and happy and he was joking around. And Andy Gibb might not be a jokester in this, but he's just full of optimism and he's happy. And it would still be another, like, you know, 12 years before he passed away at the age of 30. But it's still tragic to hear such a young flame burning brightly and knowing that in just a few years he'd be gone. And he sounds so self-aware for a guy of his age. I mean, obviously, you know, coming from that family... He's going to acquire a lot of first-hand knowledge about mm-hmm. showbiz, but it's amazing to me. He's so in control of his career and his direction and who, who he thinks he is. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, Cool Song Facts is also when rock stars attack. It's the Paul McCartney and Beatles edition, and I've got the greatest fact about the Beatles that you will ever hear. Mm. I know you're going to be blown away. I, don't, I know you don't know this fact, and it's the very last <laughs> oh. thing I'm going to tell you. No, I know. I, I just know. Like yeah. a, you are, you are a true blue Beatles fan, but I guarantee you, you will not. Finally, this. ladies and gentlemen, Ringo's shoe size is about to be revealed <laughs> for all. And of course, we end it all with the wisdom of Dave. Now, I mm. need to say that this might be right near the end of our series of the wisdoms of Dave's. I'll say it isn't so, <laughs> because we're starting to run out. But I think we've got fifteen in total. I think this is number fourteen. Wow. Yeah. So all that is coming up first. Tina Turner. You know, Tina Turner has had one of the most extraordinary careers in pop music, if you look over her whole history, with the drama of her personal life being played out on stage, first as a singer in Ike Turner's band, then as one half, at least in name only, of Ike and Tina Turner, and finally onto a triumphant solo career. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you've ever seen her 86 autobiography, I, Tina. I saw the movie. Yes. Well, the movie <laughs> is, is a good representation yes. of, <laughs> of the book. I mean, right. the book is a survivor's manual. And if you like her music, it's worth reading. Okay. Um, I mean, she has such a powerful presence, and it's a great redemption story. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful candor in this interview, too. She talks about how she tried to get Ike's attention when they first met. I uh, was in high school in, in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Ike was uh, it's called the local star very popular in St. Louis and uh, I started going to like clubs weekends and I had asked him if I could sing because one of the girls that was in school with me was singing with him and I sort of envied her but he never let me sing for some reason so finally um, it was an after hour club called the Club Manhattan in East St. Louis uh, where we'd go like um, after he'd leave the Club de Lisa in St. Louis, Missouri and uh, I very often played the piano or organ on intermission and the drummer, which was dating my sister at the time, set the microphone down, teasing my sister. I took the microphone and started singing. And I realized that I had a voice, that I had talent. And uh, ever since then, I started singing weekends with him. 
he had written some songs to record on uh, one of the uh, male vocalists in the group, and the guy didn't make the session. I knew the songs because I'd been around, and he recorded the song on me, which was A Fool in Love. That was 1960, and that's when we all we got the whole thing started. Oh, great stuff. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, Tina worked with two of the most notoriously controlling men in popular music. Mm-hmm. Well, first her husband, Ike, and then master producer, Phil Spector. Oh, dear. Yes, we're gathering more Spectre stories as each week goes by. Have you noticed? Yes, for sure we are. Wow. We, yeah, we shared just a couple weeks ago. Um, Spectre had parted ways with the Righteous Brothers and was looking for a new black act to work with when he saw Ike and Tina. It was Tina he wanted to produce and make that happen. He paid Ike $20,000 to not show up at the studio. No way! Uh-huh. That is great. Here, you don't have to come to work today. <laughs> $20,000. I'd take that. The result? River Deep Mountain High. Great song. Written by Spectre, Jeff Barry, and Ellie Greenwich. And it was considered sort of the culmination of Spectre's early career as a producer and songwriter. The sessions featured the, the, the customary sort of Spectre armada of musicians and singers, including Leon Russell. Mm-hmm. Glenn Campbell played on the session. Darlene Love. It took weeks to complete. Cost over $20,000. An unheard of figure yeah. for a single at that time. Yeah. The result? bombed in the U.S. Oh, and he was really upset by that. Well, so upset that he basically went into hiding after that. It was a hit in the U.K., but he, he literally, Spectre, retired from the music business for a number of years in the wake of the disappointment of River Deep Mountain High. Mm-hmm. Now, the song's luster has been reestablished in the U.S. with hindsight. Rolling Stone, in its top 500 songs of all time, made it number 33. Here's Tina on working with Phil Spector. Well, Phil was very much in his own way, like Ike. He's, uh, he drives very strong, like our rehearsals ran like two hours, and uh, he just wanted strictly melody, like no like delivery as, so to speak, uh, this is my style mostly, like sort of delivery, and which was easy for me, but uh, it's like the searching for the keys was the only thing was hard because like, it was, kept switching keys, but I enjoyed working with, with Phil, I got, that's how I, we got to meet uh, Mick of the Rolling Stones, and uh, when the song hit... River Deep Mountain High in England in 66 the Rolling Stones requested that we tour England with him and then in 68 when they toured America they wanted us to uh, uh, on the bill with him and that's when uh, everything broke loose now when it came to what to sing in Ike's band Tina got her way here she is talking about doing the song I Want to Take You Higher is that the Sly song? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm now the quality on this one's a little bit scratchy so bear with us we were changing the show we had got a new group together the Ike had a new set of girls and they were going to do higher, and I loved the song, and they didn't make it. They didn't make it happen, and so I took it away from them and started singing on stage. So in Las Vegas, we were putting together um, one of our albums, I can't think which one, and the record company, some of the representatives just requested that we, we had to put in, you know, uh, higher. So we did, and boom. Here she talks about covering Creedence Clearwater Revival's Proud Mary. Well, it's, it's, it goes like not as uh, going to the studio and record. It came about the same way. When we were doing the same time, we were changing the show. When we did Higher, we were doing Proud Mary. So we put in Proud Mary because we had to audition a girl. She, she sang Proud Mary for an audition, and I started playing it. He realized that he liked it. I've been liking it all the time. So 
we started doing it on stage. We've been doing it on stage two years before we recorded and put it out. Wow, that's great. You know, mm-hmm. and I got to tell you, I I think that there are times when artists steal songs from the original artists. Right. Right? Like, I think Aretha stole respect, respect yeah, from, from, Otis. from Otis Redding. And mm-hmm. she he even said when he heard it, she done stole my song is what he said, <laughs> but, but he was really happy for her. I'm sure. And I do believe that uh, Ike and Tina revived Proud Mary in a way that John Fogarty could never have imagined. Yeah. Well, her live shows are legendary. Mm-hmm. And you can see um, old Ike and Tina performances on YouTube. Here she talks about what she wants the crowd to feel. Exciting, I think. Um, I think, I, at least I would like to think that I make people happy, you know. I think maybe when I first come on, I might have... Uh, uh, the girls might uh, sort of feel maybe um, they might reject me you know, a bit, but I sort of try to over uh, to overcome that, you know, try to get to them to let them know that it's it's not what they're thinking. I'm just here to give you whatever you want, you know, that sort of thing. So I think that I project that. I think uh, I think our music is good. There's times when it's better, of course, and um, our sound. Let's see. Well, I've never particularly liked my voice. I mean, it's okay. People like it, you know, but it, it's always so big and, uh, you know. But I think that it's gross sort of sound and uh, sort of a pulsating beat, pushing, soulful rock. Wow. Is there anything about Tina Turner that's just not lovable? She's passionate about her music. She's very humble. And what we know now about her relationship with Ike, we can kind of see where she had to maneuver to get her own way. And she did it. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. Yeah. Okay, so we have one additional bonus track, okay? This is like the director's cut of, uh, <laughs> of the whole Tina Turner segment that we're going to do. We talked to Tina in 1989 upon the release of her latest album, Foreign Affair. Now, that was the one that had the best on it. Of all the songs that kind of she became known for, that is one of her signature songs, right? Yeah. And that came so much later in her career. Another Holly Knight song, too. Right, and we heard Holly Knight singing, uh, demoing Better Be Good to Me. me. That was fantastic. (laughs) We just repeated that on a recent show. So, we have an interview with Tina from 1989, but we're going to take the very beginning of that interview and throw it out. And it's actually the very last question we're interested in. And we asked her if the album Foreign Affair represented a return to her R&B roots. Okay, let me think about that. Gone home to my R&B roots. You know... I, I got to tell you that I don't know if I ever felt like, I listened to radio and felt R&B roots, but I don't feel like I've ever done an album that really captured it like this one. I know a lot of people feel that, that I was really R&B and all of that, you know. I know the Fool in Love days, I guess I guess you can say that, or I, or I guess that because those were times in my life that I don't really want to relate to, that I might have pushed it aside. But I, what I really feel about it is I finally made a really good song that was equivalent to songs that were sung by all of those people that I just named, like, you know, the Otis Reddings and the Marvin Gaye's, and those are songs that those people would have recorded. I wanted to sing the songs that they were singing back in, in the past. I think this album is, yes, it is going back to a type of, to a time in my life when I wanted that, this type of material, and I didn't have it. But those guys had it. And I feel like maybe 10 years down the line of nearly 20, I got it. That's, uh, that's what I feel. Okay, so did you hear that? After all those years, she finally felt that this album was the return to her R&B roots. And she doesn't feel like her R&B roots were really 
represented well on her albums. And I would even argue that she didn't quite do it enough on that album, that Foreign Affair mm-hmm. album. And that's kind of, that. there's something a little bit tragic about the fact that Tina never really felt like she got down with those R&B roots enough on some of, on some of her albums. Correct me if I'm wrong, what I got from that too is the fact that although we think of her as being one of the quintessential R&B artists of her time, you know, along with an Aretha Franklin or maybe even going back to the roots artists like Ruth Brown, um, maybe she didn't think of herself that way. Sure. That she never fully embodied the R&B that we hear so clearly in everything she sings, whether it's a pop tune or not. Yes, and it could be that. And it also could be that she was a thriving artist who'd had a second life as of about 1983-84 with the Private Dancer album. Mm -hmm. And so she wanted to remain on the charts. So maybe the R&B side of her wasn't one that was going to be exploited on the pop charts enough. So they created great songs for her, songs with emotion, songs with a little bit of like guts to them, but maybe not enough R&B like funk or soul or, you know, just something that was that ran a little bit deeper there. But those songs were still great mm-hmm. that she did. Stevie Windows. Mm-hmm. That's right, from that album. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook, Famous Lost Words, or on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. Christopher, let's talk about Andy Gibb. Mm -hmm. Well, as the younger brother to the Gibb brothers, Barry, Maurice, and Robin, Andy had all the genetic gifts that a singer could want, along with the obvious entree into a very competitive business. Fortunately for him... He had the talent to match all of that, and his career was launched in spectacular fashion with three consecutive number one singles, Mm -hmm. beginning with I Just Want to Be Your Everything. Now, a little over 10 years later, it was all over with his untimely death at 30 uh, in 1988. This interview from 77, to me, amplifies the tragedy of an artist full of optimism at the beginning of his story who seemingly had the world at his feet. Here, Andy talks about the legacy of being a Gibb brother and working in Miami, where the Bee Gees recorded some of their most iconic hit records. Uh, I've always been in it, I think. Since I was 13, I've been playing and performing and songwriting. So it's just, you know, with the family and my brothers being the Bee Gees, it's just something I've always been involved in. So it just sort of developed and happened. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose Miami to record your Flowing Rivers LP? Well, basically on the suggestion of my brother Barry, because they did the album Main Course there and Children of the World. And they do all their work there now. And uh, Barry was recommending it to me. So we went down there and tried it out where we cut I Just Want to Be Your Everything. And uh, I was wrapped in the studio. The, album, the, ho- the whole studio is fabulous. It's also the place um, the Eagles chose to do Hotel California. Mm-hmm. So it's getting a lot of, uh, it's getting very popular now. You know, talking about that studio in Miami, I told you a story a few weeks ago about when I went down to Miami yeah. to do an interview with them. And I was in that studio. And this was in the year 2000. And they had a wall dedicated to their late brother, right? Right. So imagine, you know, they're at this point they're, you know, probably into their 50s and they lost they lost Andy, you know, 2 year uh, uh, 20 years earlier and they still have this kind of shrine on uh, on a wall uh, dedicated to him and they were mm. clearly still very upset by losing him, of course. Yeah, wow. He gave us a glimpse into the songwriting genius of older brother Barry. Well, actually how that happened was me and Barry were in Bermuda at my manager's house um, co-writing songs together. And we'd already done about three at that point and uh, liked each one of them. And then Barry was sitting there on his own and just came up with the whole melody of I Just Want to Be Everything. And about two or three minutes, it was finished. I mean, he just had the whole thing straight through. 
and uh, that night he put the lyrics down to it and he just developed it like that there was no real real uh, incident or stories you know that it came from great song i just want to be your everything mm-hmm um, he did not participate in the writing of that song, as you know from the clip, but he talks about being a songwriter and how sometimes you just know when you've got something special. Not always. I'm, I'm, well, I, I find myself anyway in a type of writer that likes to create more so than from personal experience. Mm-hmm. I have written from personal experience, but it takes a while after that experience has happened before you, it, re- it really comes out in your songwriting. Mm-hmm. You know? When you go into the studio, do you have the idea that this, well, this is going to be a single or do you just cut you know, tracks? Well, I don't know. In the case of I Just Want to Be Your Everything, for instance, um, we had the album material selected for the whole album before we even wrote I Just Want to Be Your Everything. But um, the minute we heard, the minute it was written, it was just one of those songs that everybody knew that that was the single, no matter what. Mm-hmm. It was just one of those kind of songs, and uh, they're rare. He also goes on to talk about his particular style of writing, which is maybe not exactly what you'd expect, and the influence of location. At this point on the class, uh, I class it as... Uh, cross between country rock and R&B music but um, I don't know I'd like to hit more toward I'd like to point my style more towards R&B which is it's really being helped living here in Miami too because it's a lot more R&B down here as you can well imagine love of performance also runs in the family Andy talks about his stage look and I love this part <laughs> dealing with the fans oh yeah I love touring very much what do you what do you usually like to wear on stage how do you like to look I always like to look in, in bright colors something different um find a lot of people, you know, you're getting very, very short of ideas nowadays and running into what other people are wearing. I don't like to do that too much. I like to get away into very uh, original things. Good. Are, are you ever frightened when fans, you know, try to get at you or rush the stage, you know, that sort of thing? When they don't, you worry. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't really know? Um, I haven't really had that strong yet. Well, not that strong a response that I've had to worry, you know, but I've seen it happen. Mm-hmm. I've seen it to other people, you know, and it can be frightening. Do you mind the lack of privacy? Um... I didn't think I would probably until about this point, and where I've always really had as much privacy as I've ever, ever wanted, you know? Mm-hmm. And now it's starting to become popular. It's, you know, working every second of the day. And, uh, well, you know, that's all part of it, and I accept it. Mm-hmm. What, I read somewhere you're uh, interested in television. What aspect of television are you interested in? Well, um, personally, things like television specials, or maybe even some, some point, some degree, I'd like to get into some acting roles, but... Uh, they're a long way in the future. I've had offers to do specials and things, but I'm not into that just yet. Wow. You know, I don't think there's a handbook for how to deal with a mob. You know, and yeah. there should be. They should have started it in 1965, a year after the Beatles came to town, right? <laughs> with everybody just going crazy following them around, and it is so hard to deal with. You know, we have artists like the Bay City Rollers in the mid-70s, um, Andy Gibb in the late-70s. You have New Kids. You have Backstreet Boys. Mm-hmm. You have Sean Mendez now, who has rabid fans yeah. who hang off every Every word, every Instagram post. And you know what I love, just on a complete side note about him, is he he was asked about would he have rather had his career start in a time when social media wasn't present. He said, nope, I wouldn't have a career. Not Sean, yes, for sure, yes, absolutely. So you never know how you're going to build that crowd, but when it comes, as Andy Gibb was here, you better be grateful for it. What he listened to, I found a little bit surprising. Oh, generally... uh Eagles, generally people like Jackson Brown, lyricist Neil Young, all those sort of people I'm very much into. Surprisingly for somebody at his young age, he talked about the state of the music industry. Wow. <laughs> I guess when, he, 19. when you're ready for pronouncements. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, as, at least as he entered it, he was also asked about joining his brother's band. This 
music industry, I think, is headed in a very good one at, at the moment as it stands. I think the past two years, uh, looking at the American and English charts, the, song, the songs that are on the charts now are so much more, uh, I don't know, more refined, more mature. It's just, it's like there's a whole new breed of songwriters that are coming out now. You look mm -hmm. at the charts now and there's such, so many amazingly good songs on the charts. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the whole world really went through like a slump like for two or three years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, you're well. We are pretty well established now. Would you ever consider joining your brothers now? Uh, at this point, there's been no talk of it, and I, you know, don't consider it at all. I'm very, very happy that I've done something independently, mm -hmm. on my own. You know, but you know, who knows what the future holds? But that's what the way it is for now, anyway. Yeah. What about it, like a guest appearance with them? Sure. That's you know, things like that have been talked about. You know, they're all feasible and quite possible. It's just that at the moment we're both got extremely busy schedules, and it won't be for a little while, anyway. So, at the time of his death it had been announced that he was going to join the Bee Gees because his own career had had that arc of, of just massive success and then all of his personal problems leading to, you know, a considerable fall-off. Um, that's, of course, one of those things that we'll just never know mm -hmm. about. For sure. Wow. So at the time of this interview, he'd had his first number one, but all the other success hadn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. So he was talking about the follow-up and what it was going to be like, and, right. and it hadn't happened yet. And it did become a number one. Uh, yeah, my next single is going to be uh, off the album, Flowing Rivers. It's one me and Barry wrote together in uh, Bermuda called Picker Than Water. Tell me about it. What do you, how do you feel about it? Uh, I feel very strong about it. It's more across of uh, both our styles of writing, a bit of country rock in it and a bit of R&B. And Joe Walsh, actually, was next door with the Eagles at the same time as I was doing Hotel California. Mm-hmm. So he came in and put down lead guitar on the uh, in the bridge, and also laid guitar down on another uh, track on the album. So we had we had a great experience cutting that, and I'm very confident in it as a follow up to uh, everything. Yeah, I guess the, the Joe Walsh thing was because the Eagles were recording in the, in the studio at the same time. Okay, and it was just like, hey Joe, <laughs> you know, what are you up to? Oh my God! He goes, I got to play with. But the that's music. I think it happens like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So his life was pretty set up at the time of this interview, even, even at the ripe old age of 19, <laughs> and, and which meant that it would be absolutely full on for a while, as you are, in the wake of a giant hit record like he had. But the interviewer, as you'll see, also asked him about downtime. Uh, immediate future, a lot of recording and an awful lot of touring. It's all been lined up at the moment, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, that's basically what it is for now. You know. What do you like to do when you're all by yourself? Uh, watch television, I think, and just relax with a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite thing. I just don't, I don't like to go out. I'm not a, I'm not a socialite. I don't go clubbing. I'm very laid back. I'm a songwriter. You know, I just sit back and write all night. You know, that's interesting because I wonder how many young artists have absolutely no idea that fame leads to an incredible amount of hard work. First of all, there's so much hard work to get to that level. And then once you get there, you have to sustain it and you have to fulfill so many interviews and press junkets and everything that comes with it. I would bet that maybe 1% are prepared for that kind of attention, adulation, and hard work that comes with quick fame. I think you're right. I mean, the closest sort of inside look that I had was following Alana's career. And, I mean, we joked about this, but it, in some ways it wasn't funny. We said, well, you know, you're a star for one hour a day, and for the other 23, you're a piece of baggage. And she just got moved, and I don't mean that in a rude way. I just mm -hmm. mean she got sort of shifted and hauled from one place to another, and it was like whether it was a meet-and-greet with with fans who'd won a competition or whether mm -hmm. it was with local radio people. right. 
whether it was interviewers, whether it was the promoter's daughter who was a big fan, it was just like, you're going here, you're going here, you're going here. Yeah. Smile. Right. And, you know, they don't know. Like, imagine being told in 15 minutes you're going to meet a whole bunch of kids. Or imagine that you have to go to a hospital and meet a bunch of kids. And you have to, all of a sudden, turn off this star quality to become a human being while you're touching, while you're reaching out to these kids. Mm -hmm. And then you have to, you know, you have to kind of reset all the time. And it must be really disconcerting. I read your book again. Christopher, I went through oh. it again yesterday. <laughs> is this live? And you talk about the uh, about the Atlanta Miles days and everything that happened, the craziness that happens with that kind of fame and that kind of success. Nobody can prepare for that. No matter how many people came before, no matter about the Elvis experience and the Beatles experience and and all the other teen idols that also happen, you never quite can prep for that kind of thing. And nobody wants to hear you complain, right? Because they're going to go. Oh, your life is so tough. And that's it, right. Know, it's, it's like when I think it was John Taylor left Duran. It was like, you know, the stress of having to do, you know, all of these photo shoots and things. And people are going, please get over yourself, sir. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have the life that everyone wants. That's but right. of course, that's, that's not necessarily true. It's not necessarily true. You are being prodded and pushed and pulled in all sorts of different directions. And it's not, you really, you're a musician. All you really want to do is play or sing. Half the time, you don't even really want to spend all that much time in the studio. Just let me know when I can sing. That's what I do. All right, we move on to one of my favorite regular features. I hope I have enough of these to keep us going for the next several weeks, When Rock Stars Attack. And also, we've got cool song facts, and both of them have to do with Paul McCartney. So this is the Paul McCartney edition of When Rock Stars Attack. And here he is, just taking a, just a beautiful, subtle, maybe not so subtle shot at directing Ringo and George while they're still in the Beatles, okay? Ouch. We always gave Ringo direction on every single number. Really? Uh-huh. Hmm. It's hardly ever a number when we just said, okay, play what you feel. Mainly, it was very controlled. Whoever had written the song, if it was John, he'd say, I want this. And obviously, a lot of stuff was came out of what Ringo was playing anyway, but we would always control it. There would, there would hardly ever be like a break where we all didn't look at that break and think, right, we don't want anything here. I mean, some of the kind of reasons for the breakup, you know, were things like... In, I mean, minor reasons for it, some of the contributory things were like, because for instance, Hey Jude, I told George not to play guitar, because he wanted to play Hey Jude, do, 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 don't make it bad, do, 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 take a sad song, da da da, one of the echoing phrases, you know, and I really didn't see it like that, and it was a bit of a number, to, for me to have to dare to tell George Harrison, one of the, you know, whichever way you look at it, one of the greats, I think, to not play, it was like an insult, almost. So, but we were quite, we, that was how we did a lot of our stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, George got his back uh, in an interview that I did, which we'll feature later. So I just read the Paul McCartney book by Philip Norman. Right. And they talk a lot about that dynamic between George and Paul. And in, in one of them, it's in the movie, Let It Be, mm-hmm, right? I remember that sequence. Where he's, where George is playing and Paul's telling him what to play. And you can see that George is just beside himself. I'll just play what you want me to play, and then I'm going to leave, right? And then he does get up and leave. Doesn't doesn't George kind of kind of uh, charge out of the out of, out of the rehearsal? You know, or I haven't seen the movie for many many years, yeah. and I'm waiting for the re-release. Please. Yes. Um, 
he, he does sort of quit at one point, and Ringo quit at one point as well during right. the making of the film. But I don't remember if it's at the end of that sequence or not. But he was exasperated. You could see the look on his face. Which one? George? George. Yes. Yeah. And there's a lot of stories, of course, about uh, George and Paul and uh, George and Ringo. And when Ringo left, all the other Beatles realized, uh-oh, we need Ringo back. And so they all sent him flowers. Like they, it was, And it was like a, <laughs> like a plethora of flowers. Uh-huh. Oh, they overdid it completely, but Ringo felt loved, and they, sang, they called him up and sang him a song together and all that. That's how they got him back. Okay. Time now for cool song facts, and this is the Paul McCartney edition based on everything that I read in the Paul McCartney bio by Philip Norman. Okay, so Philip Norman is known as, a, you know, kind of a premier Beatles um, biographer, and he originally wrote a book called Shout, and the book Shout about the Beatles was essentially a pro-John, anti-Paul book. Paul was not happy. Then, Philip Norman writes a book about John called John Lennon, A Life. It's excellent, but boy, it certainly paints John in some ways in a very negative light. And you see why, why he left the Beatles and why he seemed to be a cantankerous, fairly contrary person in the, in the, you know, the, in the foursome known as the Beatles. And then he finally gets um, Paul McCartney to agree to allow him to write a book about him with only his tacit approval. So Paul McCartney isn't going to participate in it, but he's going to allow other people in his life, including his brother, Mike McCartney, um, to to speak to Philip Norman. Right. So it really is a complete book. That's a roundabout way of saying he got a lot of people from Paul's life to talk about Paul. It's an excellent book. It was released in 2016 or early 2017. And I'm going to read you some of my favorite cool song facts okay. from that book. All right. And now I have a Twitter account called Cool Song Facts, so that's why I blatantly uh, give myself a plug in almost every episode. But first of all, um, John Phillips of the Mamas and, and the Papas asked Paul McCartney if, they could get, if he could get the Beatles to play at Monterey. And Paul knew that George and John wouldn't go for the idea. They would say no. So Paul recommended Jimi Hendrix instead, and Hendrix became a star after Monterey. Wow. And only three days after the release of Sgt. Pepper, Jimi Hendrix did a live version of that song in England, and Paul McCartney was there, and he called it one of the great honors of my career. Yeah. So imagine that. So Sergeant Pepper comes out, I think it's June 1st, 1967. Mm-hmm. And by June 4th, Hendrix is up there playing as only he can, and he's doing it was 20 years ago today and just rocking it. By the way, you can see that on YouTube, okay? Okay, so early on in the Beatles, John and Paul agreed to have the dominant writer's name come first on the songwriting credits. Mm, didn't stick with that one. It didn't stick. And that is, it's funny because it's this undercurrent of Paul being kind of bitter about those songwriting credits. Because well, sure, because Lennon's name comes first on Yesterday, which he had nothing to do exactly. with. Exactly. That's the song that drives Paul to distraction. Yeah. And he even calls up. Yoko, after John's gone and saying, Yoko, please, would you mind if I put my name first on yesterday? And Yoko won't go for it. Okay. Now, John, uh, Paul did get a writing credit on Give Peace a Chance, Mm -hmm. which he had nothing to do with. Right. Right. She wrote more of that. Or Strawberry Fields for that matter. That's right. So it's very interesting that that originally it's whoever wrote it would get the first songwriting credit. But soon the names were written in alphabetical order, which was mm-hmm. you know, convenient for uh, John. Okay, producer and singer Peter Asher. Do you know Peter? Oh, of course. Do you, do you know him personally? No, but he, okay. he has a, a podcast that you can hear that's fantastic. Oh, okay, good, good. Now, Peter Asher was uh, the brother 
of Jane Asher, who was Paul's longtime girlfriend in the mid-60s. And he was half of Peter and Gordon. Right, A World Without Love and a couple of other songs. A, a Paul McCartney song. A Paul McCartney song. So Peter owes a little bit of his start, anyway, his career, to Paul McCartney. And he became a, a big shot at Apple Records. So Peter Asher once dated little Millie Small. Do you know who that is? Yeah, my boy Lollipop. My boy Lollipop. Wow. So he dated this, her. This is getting more and more I obscure. I know. So <laughs> but I'm you with you. So that's another cool song <laughs> fact. Peter Asher. And Peter Asher eventually, many, many years later, produced an Amanda Marshall album. I did not realize that. Okay, yes. Uh, but I also know that he developed and produced Linda Ronstadt and James Taylor's careers. Right, okay. Another cool song fact. In the song Eleanor Rigby, Father Mackenzie was originally going to be called Father McCartney. But Paul didn't want people to believe it was about his beloved father. So his father was Jim McCartney, and the, the, mm. the, the, they spent a lot of time talking about his father and the relationship that Paul had with his father, and it was a great relationship. So he didn't want to do that. Also, in Eleanor Rigby, Paul wrote most of it, but not all of it. It was Ringo who came up with the line, get this, darning his socks in the night when there's nobody there. That is such a great line. Wow. Ringo wrote that line, according to this book. And George added the line, all the lonely people. And no. that is that is a huge part of the song, but it says so in the book, Christopher. It can't be wrong. Okay, it can't well, it be can wrong. Be. But, but, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know the song, Across the Universe? I do. John Lennon's song. So the quavery voices on Across the Universe belong to a couple of female Beatles fans who were waiting outside Abbey Road Studios, as they often did anyway, whether the Beatles were there or not. So John wanted real people, not professionals, singing that, um, nothing's gonna change. Right, that, right, want right. that really high part with the, mm-hmm. with the kind of choir-type voices. He said, Paul, go out there and get a couple of the girls that are waiting outside. So those quavery voices are Beatles fans singing. And one of the reasons why they're quavering, I'm sure, is because they're in, a, they're in the, the studio. <laughs> they're on in, a Beatles session. That's yeah. right. That's right. Isn't that cool? Okay. Very cool. Cool song fact. The Paul is Dead rumors began in a spoof article by the students of Drake University in Iowa. So American radio stations picked up this spoof story and it quickly bloomed out of control. It went viral. It went viral in a time when, when that, was very, that was very unusual. Okay. Here's another cool song fact. When Paul recorded Live and Let Die for the James Bond movie of the same name, the producer of the movie thought it was just a demo and didn't like that Paul was on it because he previously had been only women singing. So Ah. the same producer recommended that Thelma Houston sing Live and Let Die instead. So, Paul, I know you wrote this song for us, but you're not good enough to sing on it. We have to get (laughs) Thelma Houston on it instead. Ouch. Which, right. And she did Don't Leave Me This Way, which is a great song all on its own, but I think Paul probably did the best job. Yeah, he did yeah. right. Okay. John and Paul were both invited to perform at George's Concert for Bangladesh tour. Okay? But they were both afraid that they would turn up on stage at the same time, and they didn't want to encounter each other. They were both interested in going, but they didn't want to be blindsided by this kind of mini reunion because they did not. Yeah. They were not in the mood for a Beatles reunion at the time. Okay. In 1975, John agreed to play with Paul on the next Wings album to be recorded in New Orleans. John agreed to play with Paul. Get that. 75? Yes. Okay. Wow. Okay. But that week, when he was ready At to the depart, speed of sound? Uh, I'm not 100% sure. Okay. That week, he's, he's ready to go to Louisiana. 
He reunited with Yoko that week after being away from her for 18 months. Yoko convinces him. Oh, the not lost weekend, right? The lost weekend with May Pang, right? Ah. Um, so he, so he, he, he reunites with Yoko. Yoko says, "Yeah, don't go down with Paul." Hmm. Okay. <clears throat> if only. At one point in the 1990s, Linda McCartney's frozen veggie entrees made more money for the MPL company than Paul did on his music. What? Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay. 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 So you remember the Beatles anthology? Of course. And the song, do you remember what the song was called that they re- recorded? Free as a Bird. Free as a Bird. So Yoko had to give the permission to use that mm-hmm. kind of poor quality. It's unfortunate that that was the reason. I think it was song. on a cassette, wasn't it? Was it was on a cassette. Yeah. Yoko's reason for agreeing to let the surviving Beatles use John's Free as a Bird for the Beatles anthology was thus. And I have a quote here. I have the reputation of having broken up the Beatles. Now I was in a position where I could bring them back together. Wow. Right? What a great quote. Yeah. Well, she okay. gave them permission to use three tracks, two of which they did use. Right. Real Love was, uh, was the other was one. The other yes. one yeah. yeah. Okay. This is cool song facts, but it could be called weird song facts. This is, this is not a song fact, but it is a Beatles fact, and it's honestly the weirdest thing I've ever heard. So the Beatles do A Hard Day's Night, the movie. They do Help, the movie, I think they've done Magical Mystery Tour, which is a bust. Mm. And they've done Yellow Submarine, which wasn't a huge hit, but it revitalized the British animation scene. It actually brings them out of the doldrums and actually influences Monty Python, that whole... Well, they didn't have a lot to do with that picture, nor were they very interested in it, as I recall. In fact, they would sort of throw their leftover songs. When they were writing songs, it's like, well, this one's not good enough to record. Let's let's, let's, let it in the yellow There you go. There you go. Okay. Weirdest Beatles fact ever. In 1968, the Beatles were pitched the idea of starring in a film adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings was not huge. It was only huge in colleges at that point. Paul was offered the role of Frodo. I know this sounds like a joke. This is honest to God what it says in the book. John would have played Gollum. Okay. My precious. That's right. George would be Gandalf. And Ringo would have played Sam. I like the casting. John and Paul even met with Stanley Kubrick to direct it. Wow. That sound is just your mind exploding. Lord of the Ringos. <laughs> wow. <laughs> there you go. There you go. When Rock Stars Attack and Cool Song Facts, the Beatles and Paul McCartney edition. You outdid yourself today. Thank you, Tom. We wrap things up right now with the wisdom of Dave. And I've got to tell you, this David Lee Roth clip, like usually they're kind of based in some kind of truth or some kind of just observation that Dave has made. And they actually end up not leading anywhere or they end up in a confusing place <laughs> or where we hear it and we just go, oh, man, like Ugh. we got to have a shower after that. That's just disgusting. <laughs> but this one is my favorite wisdom of Dave because he actually says something here about influences, about inspiration, and basically about stealing other people's music to create your own original song. Listen to this. Oh, I like all kinds of music and then I steal from everybody. Inspiration does not, the hand of God does not descend through the ceiling while you lay on your bed and point a big massive finger at you and say, here Joe, have an idea. It doesn't go like that. You have to steal it from somebody and then you take it home and you learn it just the way it is. Then you say, well, 
I think I want to change the beginning. Since I changed the beginning, you know, why not change the end? And since I changed the beginning and the end, you know I got a better idea for the middle. Hey, come on, you know, Beatles schmeels. So you go ahead and you change the middle, and by the time you wheel it out on stage, you know, or onto a record, put it on plastic, nobody recognizes it. In fact, you don't even recognize it yourself after the eighth time you've played it or sang it. And that's where inspiration comes from. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> David Lee Roth, on the Wisdom of Dave, probably our second last Wisdom of Dave, finally says something. <sighs> I'm touched. <laughs> And so you should be. Well, that does it for another episode of Famous Lost Words, produced by Adam Karsh. And our special thanks today to Chris Bauer for engineering. Thank you, Chris. Remember to follow us on Facebook at Famous Lost Words, Twitter at Famous Lost Pod, and on Instagram. Don't forget, you can also catch up on past episodes of Famous Lost Words on iTunes and the iHeartRadio app. Thank you for listening. 